Let us pray. Send your Spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to accept what we hear. (coughs) Purify our will to obey in joy and faith. This we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. And the reading for today is from the letter of Paul to the Philippians, the first chapter, verses 6 and 7. Listen to the word of God. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul was a man who dealt in assurances. It's fair to say that he never left anybody in doubt about where he stood on any particular subject. Now, sometimes when people do that, that means they're being negative. They'll let you know exactly what they think, and it's usually something bad about someone or something. We, we all know people like that, and maybe sometimes in our worst moments we may feel like that. But Paul was different in that regard. He knew where he stood. He was not afraid to say where he stood. But he did so with great assurance because he knew that no matter how great the difficulty that he confronted or the church confronted, he knew that the outcome was assured. Now, what does that mean? Why could he be so optimistic about the outcome? Well, Paul derived his zeal not from his personal frustration at any setbacks, but from the certainty that he was on the right side, the winning side. And now again, we have to take pause of that. It's not good to be arrogant. It's not good to necessarily think that you're on the winning side or that you're always right. But again, with Paul, it was different. This was not presumptuous pride because we know that Paul could be very humble. Instead, it was that Paul trusted completely in his message And even more, most importantly, he trusted in the one who stood behind the message. He he stood, Jesus stood behind the message. God stood behind the message. And Paul knew that and Paul trusted in him. And so Paul was very confident that he was on the side of God. Now, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul at first shares some personal greetings as he does in pretty much all of his letters. But then after those greetings, Paul encourages his friends by assuring them that their labor in the Lord was not in vain. Their contributions to the gospel would be rewarded. What a great encouragement that was. Not just to the church in Philippi, of course, but also to us today. We are in our own various ways engaging in a labor for the Lord or various labors for the Lord. And sometimes 
we don't seem to see results. Sometimes it seems that we may even labor in vain. But Paul is telling us that no, we do not labor in vain, just as the early Christians did not labor in vain. And indeed, we will be rewarded. Now, again, when we think about the word reward, what does that mean? Does it mean monetary gifts? Well, it might, but I don't think that's the main meaning of Paul's words. Uh, They certainly should not be limited to material gifts. There's a word translated fellowship, which includes the sympathy and compassion expressed by various gifts. Paul is referring to the various services of the people at Philippi, and he is grateful that they provided him with the means to continue to spread the gospel. And so just as they have provided those means, they also will be rewarded. Now, the fellowship with Paul that the Philippians enjoyed had begun the first day that they knew him, and it continued for as long as he was in their midst, and in fact, more than that, as long as he kept contact with them, because he couldn't be in their midst forever. But he did stay in touch, as this letter evidences. And so Paul was rejoicing in their friendship. And he sent them a great promise from prison. And isn't it a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, when we can rejoice in a good friendship? Particularly a friendship within the church. A friendship with another follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul was able to experience that. And the people in Philippi were able to experience that in this Such a blessing when we can experience that today, too. The message that I'm giving today has to do with God never giving up. Another encouragement for us. God never gives up, and God works in various ways. One thing we need to remember, and that is an encouragement, I think, is that God is working constantly. Now, Paul, as we know, followed Jesus. And we know that Paul was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. That was the call that God had put on his heart to reach out to those who were outside of the faith of Israel. And yet, having said that, Paul never gave up his Jewish identity. He was always aware of that. And he always held on to that. And as a devout Jew, he brought with him the truth of God's work that is described in the Old Testament. Um, And one truth, one thing that is described in the Old Testament is that the prophets would stress that God was always working in the world. Remember, the Old Testament contains the testimony of the prophets, and the prophets testify about how God is working in the world. Something that we should recognize is that an Old Testament prophet would never, ever have entertained the thought that God is not working in the world and that God is not constantly intervening in the world. In other words, I've talked about this before. The modern thought, although it has ancient roots, of deism, where people do believe in God and they believe God set the universe in motion, but then... God simply steps back and doesn't really have anything to do with it anymore. 
Well, that would have been an unimaginable heresy, even a blasphemy for an Old Testament prophet. An Old Testament prophet would believe that God is actively working each and every day, each and every moment to bring about good in the creation and to uphold the creation. And here's the point. God is present even when he seems the most invisible. God is present even when he seems the most invisible. There are times in our lives, I think, where God seems invisible. I think we've all experienced times like that. Those times can be referred to as a dark night of the soul. However you want to refer to it, it is a sad feeling, a scary feeling, a lonely feeling. And yet, even when it seems like there is nothing at all, even if it seems like there is nothing but a great void out there, even if it seems like when we are praying, we're simply talking to an empty room, God is there. And of course, to understand that, to accept that, we have to have faith. But that was something that the Old Testament prophets emphasized over and over again. Even when God seems invisible, He is there. We also get a glimpse into the righteousness of God from the Old Testament. Well, more than a glimpse, we get a big description of the righteousness of God, and that is carried into the New Testament as well. And again, it's paradoxical. We know that God can be God can be a judge. God can, in fact, pull things down. God can even destroy. But God destroys what needs to be destroyed. And he builds his kingdom on the ruins. The greater kingdom. The more glorious kingdom. The wonderful kingdom that God has created for his people. You see, Paul's God brought judgment not just for the sake of judgment or for punitive purposes, but for redemptive purposes. That was true in the Old Testament, and it was true in the New, and of course it is true throughout the history of the people of God, both then and now. And so the sovereign grace of God leads people to repentance, has led people to repentance, it leads people to repentance now, and by the Holy Spirit... This sovereign grace leads to the transformation of the people as well, because hasn't it been said more than once that God loves us as we are, but also God loves us too much to leave us as we are. And as I look back on my own life, I say, thank God for that. God's spirit, talking again about how God works constantly in the world. We know that God's spirit moved over the emptiness, the waste, the void, and brought creation into being from the beginning of Genesis. And throughout history, and even today, God continues to transform the chaos of this cosmos into a new creation. Perhaps we need nothing more than a fresh realization of the sovereignty of God supplemented by an understanding that he is merciful and forgiving to repentant people. Again, in the chaos of the world, in the chaos of events around the world, 
in the chaos of politics at home, we seem to be in an unprecedented situation this year, God is sovereign, and God is working in the hearts of men and women to bring about transformation. God is always beginning a new work. As we know, the world continually changes. But God challenges, I'm sorry, God channels these changes into meaningful and redemptive events. Someone once said that the very word history actually means his story. And do we have the faith to accept that? That history is really the story of God. It can be hard to see. Sometimes it may seem impossible to see. But indeed, history is the story of God. And so we learn that God works constantly in our creation. God is the God of history. God is the God of the cosmos, upholding all things and transforming all things for the good. But God also works, and God continues to work in the lives of individuals. He works to save individuals. People cannot meet their own needs. And that is something that is counterintuitive to us. Don't we believe we can meet our own needs? Shouldn't we meet our own needs? Well, of course, most of us have to work for a living. Most of us have to provide for our families and so on and so forth. But when we think about our spiritual needs, there is really nothing we can do to help ourselves or save ourselves. There is, well, it's a basically secular philosophy, but I think it's also infiltrated the church. The philosophy that our salvation is in our hands. And the fact is, it is not. There is an inescapable fact that God is in control and that only God can make possible our salvation. God controls the beginning of our lives. I mean, have any of us chosen to be born? No. <laughs> we don't make that choice. It's done outside of us, and then we come into being. And just as God controls our beginning, so he controls our ultimate destiny. With the sad exception of those people who, for whatever reason, choose suicide, none of us choose to die, just as we're not choosing to be born. And yet it is the inescapable iron logic that as time passes, we come closer and closer to that time that God has chosen for our deaths. So we know that God controls our beginning and our end. God brings about regeneration as well, and he's able to complete the work that he has begun. Only God can justify people. The Apostle Paul asks, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's Rome 8 30, Romans 8.33. God declares the sinner righteous on the basis of Christ's work on Calvary. And so our personal growth as Christians is also directed by God. It is contingent, though, upon our having that salvation experience. We are justified and then we are sanctified. God will continue the good work 
that he has begun throughout our Christian lives, however short or long that time may be. Sanctification, that term, it's both an act and a process. It is this continual improvement in our lives, in our conduct, in our very thoughts that is brought about by the gracious action of God. Now, God's Holy Spirit sets us apart and we continue to grow as we commit ourselves more and more to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we also surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that God began the work in our lives, all of the work in our lives, from the moment we drew our first breath. And God continues the work in our lives, again, until the time that we draw our last breath. Paul's words are a comforting assurance, but also a constant challenge. No Christian has reached perfection. God works constantly to bring us to spiritual maturity. And so, what does that mean? One thing is that it means we have to have our complacency disturbed often. You know, in God's providence, it is so often the case that I hear something in our Sunday school lesson that relates to the sermon I'm preaching. It's not coordinated, but it happens over and over again. It has to be the providence of God. And we were um, discussing the rich young ruler who had seemed to keep the law quite well in his own eyes, and he thought he was doing quite well. And then it turned out he was totally missing the law. He was totally not following the way of God. And Jesus tried to tell him that. And he said, give up all you own, and then you will be following God, and you will come into the kingdom of heaven. And that rich young man couldn't do it. We can have a hope, perhaps, that he returned later to the way of God, but... According to the text, he didn't. He went away. Sometimes we need our complacency disturbed. We may think that we are doing what God would require us to do and that we are on the right path as Christians, but it may be that we're not. And we may need to hear a correcting word that is inspired by God. That's true for whoever you are. True for me as a preacher, certainly. It's true for church elders. It's true for... Mega preachers like Charles Spurgeon, true for the Pope, true for anybody who claims the name of Christ. The good news is that is that the saving grace by which we begin our spiritual experience will never be disturbed. It will never be destroyed. The God who saved us from the penalty of sin is each day saving us from the power of our sin and leading us to become more like our Savior. Thanks be to God for that. And so just as God works in history and to save individuals, God also works in the churches. Every local congregation is precious in the sight of God. Every local congregation, of course, including this one. God loves every congregation as a bridegroom loves his bride. And he expects each local congregation to be a body through which he can do his work in the world. The church at Philippi was a work of God's grace. When Paul entered the city, there were not enough 
spiritually minded people to form even a small synagogue to study the Old Testament. People were just not interested. But Paul found a group of women praying by the riverside. And from that humble beginning, others were added. We don't really know how large the Philippian church became numerically, but we do know that it was one of great spirit. We know that the spirit of the Lord was present in that church. Paul was convinced that nothing, including the gates of hell, would prevail against that church. And God would continue the good work that Paul himself had begun in the church. And those of us in local congregations need to be reminded of that, and we need to be reinforced constantly with that great truth. A pastor is certainly not alone in his work. God is with us, I would certainly hope. The congregation is not without help. We're not cut off from the outside world or from God, because the Holy Spirit attends every assembly of born-again believers. The Holy Spirit is here just as much as he would be at a church with thousands of members. The ultimate success of a church does not rest in the human strength of its members or even the numbers, but rather in the power of God. And the permanence of the church's existence depends on God's power. I've heard many stories, sadly, about once thriving churches that have died. They've withered and died. And there are so many reasons for that. The church could not adapt to the changing area it was in. People lost commitment. They found other things to do. The church may have compromised too much on important doctrines and didn't offer enough of a contrast with the world. But thanks be to God that he has upheld and in fact increased the number and strength of faithful congregations. The church at Philippi, like all churches in the first century, suffered from some degree of persecution. We don't know how much, but we do know that it did come in periodic waves. It was a very difficult environment in which to be, and yet the church thrived in the midst of persecution. It thrived in the midst of opposition. It thrived in the pagan environment that surrounded it. The members gave a unique witness, you see, and indeed, many were so committed that they would lose their very lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. They were, above all, committed to sharing their faith. God had spoken to them, and God was working through them. And this assured their continuity. I've talked about God working in history, from the beginning of history. And God is going to continue working until the day of Christ, as it is said, as Paul has said. Now, the Old Testament prophets, going back to them, they constantly look forward to the day of the Lord. And Paul himself hoped for the return to earth of Jesus, his Savior and Lord. This event would consummate history in a climactic and comprehensive manner. 
to Paul, everything done for Jesus was worthwhile because he would eventually win the victory. And so Paul's concept of being saved includes a third element. In other words, God saves individuals, God saves the churches. But also, not only have we been saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but at Christ's coming we shall be saved from the presence of sin. That is so hard to imagine. Paul was convinced that Christ works all things to his glory, both in the lives of individuals and in the churches. Nothing can happen outside of the ultimate will of God. The satanic forces of unrighteousness may win some battles, and we know they do, but Christ will win the conflict. The central theme of the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, is that victory belongs to the Lord and to his people. And Paul concludes his great chapter on the resurrection with a plain, simple exhortation to faithfulness. And this is from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As Christians, we place our hope in the final consummation. That doesn't mean, however, that we are merely to stand idly by and wait for it. We should not imagine that we can do nothing to make this a better world or to develop our own Christian lives. God calls us to constant self-improvement and constant action. At the same time, however, we do need to recognize that our supreme mission consists in leading individuals to redemption in Jesus Christ. Indeed, this provides the best way to improve the world. And in fact, leading people to Christ is the only way in which the world will become the way that God would have it to be. Peace on earth will come only as peace rules the hearts of enough people to affect the world and its social order. And I don't think I'm saying anything that would come as a great surprise to you. There have been so many noble attempts throughout history to achieve peace. After the First World War, the war to end all wars, well, it wasn't, of course. Peace could not prevail. Peace couldn't prevail even after the destruction of the Second World War. It was just a different kind of war that happened after that. Has peace broken out after the end of the Cold War? For a time, it seemed like maybe it would. If you remember the wonderful events of 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and freedom sweeping across Eastern Europe, you might have thought, as one philosopher said, that it was the end of history. Well, here we are in 2016, still in a great struggle with another ideology. And people are dying and suffering all over the world. In the heart comes peace. And it will come only from God. And that is something we must continually strive for and pray for. Now since God, to conclude, since God always completes what he begins, humanity's possibilities 
always exist their ability. Life is similar in a way to rowing a boat. We always want to go forward, but we also always have to look backward to gain perspective. We cannot be entirely certain of our future on Earth. In other words, there are so many things we don't know. We don't know what our health is going to be like over the long term. We don't know what's going to happen in our employment if we're working. We don't know what the weather's going to be like necessarily. There are so many things we don't know. We don't know who's going to win the presidential election. There are so many things we don't know. The only certainty is the existence of a divine purpose for us. This purpose began before we were born, and it's going to continue to direct us until the day we die, assuming, of course, that we are people of faith. Truly creative people will never achieve their goals. But when they come near to their goal, imagination makes their mouths water for higher aspirations and for longings yet unfilled. To be the people of God is to indeed reach great things, great heights, and yet to still have a longing for that which is unfulfilled. And God will give us what we need to continue striving upward in faith, striving in acts of love to others, striving to be the best evangelists of the gospel that we can be, looking forward always to the glorious consummation that Jesus Christ promises. And I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.